I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was four years old. I'm now 26. As I've become more involved in the community of people with diabetes, I've realized how lucky I and my family have been to afford insulin over the last two decades. But many people with diabetes, sooner or later, face an emergency when they can't get the insulin they need. It happened to me last year. I urgently needed a single vial of insulin to hold me over until I could refill my prescription. At the pharmacy, I was quoted a price of $371 for one vial of insulin, which normally lasts me about three weeks. And that amount was after my health insurance had been factored in. I left the pharmacy empty-handed because I knew I could not pay that. That was Alina Bills, an advocate for individuals facing medical disparities and the former leader of the Georgia Insulin for All chapter, reading from her first opinion essay, Turning to Social Media to Get Affordable Insulin, a Clear Sign of a Broken Healthcare System. I'll bring you our conversation after a word about a new STAT podcast. The current experiences of, of, of black people when it comes to their interactions with the medical community or doctors is also an issue. Sometimes they might go to see a doctor and feel like they're not being listened to or they're not heard. And, and how does that play into this overall problem of, of, of mistrust in the black community of the medical establishment? I have worked in major white hospital institutions and I have been dismayed by the way in which my colleagues have treated black patients and I have uh, endeavored to, to call that behavior out and to try to rectify it. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm excited to tell you about our new podcast that I'm hosting this spring. It's called Color Code. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over and someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. In a hospital, a code indicates some sort of crisis. And for so long, racism has created a crisis in American medicine. Color Code will take a hard look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. We'll journey from a 1910 report that closed many black medical schools and explore modern-day algorithms that reinforce bias. You'll hear from clinicians, researchers, and everyday folk who are just trying to give and get good care. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment, and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Color Code is coming out Monday, March 21st. The first of eight episodes is all about medical mistrust within Black communities. We'll release episodes every other week. We'll also have photos and additional reading up on our website, so be sure to keep a lookout for that. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion. Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, 
and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's so great to talk with you, Alina. Thanks for having me, Pat. You know, as you said in the introduction, you've been living with diabetes since you were four. Do you remember the before time or has diabetes always been part of your life? Diabetes has really been part of my life. It's what, uh, it's my normal. You know, when I think back of growing up, it's filled with giving myself insulin shots or practicing on um, oranges is what you normally practice like the insulin shots on. So I really can't remember a time where I wasn't worried about the carbohydrates um, and calculating, you know, how much insulin I would need for whatever food I'm eating or what my blood sugar was. It's a brain-heavy process, isn't it? Yes, it really is. I think so many, you know, I look at a plate of food and I can tell you, oh, this is how many carbohydrates this is, you know, this is how much insulin I'll probably need to take. And if I give myself too much and I want to work out later, am I going to be able to work out? Like there's so many uh, kind of, you know, uh, th factors to factor in when thinking about um you know, diabetes and, and its management. You know, I'm a fellow traveler. I was diagnosed late. You know, I was in my 50s with okay. uh, a form of type 1 diabetes called latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And I look with jealousy at people who can just sit down to food and not have to think. <laughs> I know. I always dream of like a world without diabetes. And I'm so curious, like, would will one day I be able to like sit down and say, Oh, like I'm not thinking about it, you know, just kind of off topic. But the other day I had a juice that like a homemade juice and I pre-bolus for it. So I gave myself insulin ahead of time and probably 20 minutes into that dinner, I get a Dexcom notification that my blood sugar is like 250 with two arrows up. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this juice definitely has a lot of sugar in it or something <laughs> and nobody, you know, and most people wouldn't even think twice about like letting you know, like, oh, it might have a lot of sugar in it. So beware. So for the uninitiated, let's clarify. There are two main types of diabetes, type one mm -hmm. and type two. And you have type one, is that right? Yes, I have type one diabetes. And that means your body is or isn't doing what? It's not producing insulin. Um, so my understanding of the difference between type 1 and type 2, and I'm no no expert by any means, but type 1 is essentially your body does not produce insulin, so it cannot turn, um, you know, your carbohydrates into energy without that insulin, whereas type 2 diabetes is a resistance to the insulin that your body creates. You said it perfectly. I think that's a perfect nutshell uh, description of the two. And insulin is this really amazing hormone that the pancreas makes. And without it, cells just can't absorb the sugar that's roaming around the bloodstream. And that can be really dangerous. Too much sugar in the bloodstream for too long, people can go into a coma, you can die. Over time, it'll damage everything from the, you know, from the eyes to the feet and everything in between. So it's really a nasty a uh, nasty situation. Definitely. Just want to explore for a second here. You know, in those years when you're eight and 10, you're kind of your parent's child. And then you're 14 and 18 and you're becoming a separate individual. What was it like to live with type 1 diabetes then when you were kind of on your own and forging a new identity? 
I'm sure if you asked my mother, she would have a very different answer. <laughs> I think it was a, definitely a trying time for both of us because in those kind of formative years, you don't want to stick out. You don't want to be labeled as different. And so, you know, I wore an insulin pump basically on my uniform in high school. And so people knew like, okay, there's something going on here. And, you know, some people were super nice and and kind and kind of like, oh, what is that? And wanted to learn more. Um, but still, I think, you know, from a pride perspective, I was so hesitant to, you know, openly share about diabetes. And so that in turn led to poor diabetes management. You know, this was a time before we had the technology that we currently have. So, you know, my mom would be like, oh, Alina, did you check your blood sugar? And I'd be like, yeah. And I would make up numbers. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I really wasn't, I was not the best diabetic. And, you know, of course, a parent only wants the best for their child. And so you know, the countless like endocrinologist appointments where, you know, the numbers I told my mom didn't match up to my A1C, which essentially is an average blood sugar, like six month reading. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, my mom always knew, but I would say that those kind of formative years were really trying, um, for both my, you know, my mom, my parent and I, and it was also the time that I was able to go to a, a nonprofit called Camp Kudzu, um, which is based in Atlanta. And so they, their whole, you know, mission is to educate and, and empower, uh, children living with type one diabetes. And so that was really eye opening. One, because I got to meet people that were just like me and that dealt with the same issues. And I was able to say, okay, well, what do you do when your blood sugar gets really low during school and you don't, you know, what, what's your reaction? And then at the same time, it was also eye-opening because I met people that maybe could not afford to own an insulin pump or, um, kind of aware of like my privilege as a person living with diabetes in the sense that like, you know, my mother of course had to, had, was under economic stress, you know, caring for my chronic illness, but she never informed me or never let me know that it was an issue. She only wanted the best for me. Um, but I think like by meeting others with diabetes, you learn kind of, of every kind of different economic situation and how that plays into diabetes management. So your eyes were already opened a little bit to the cost of insulin and the sometimes the difficulty of getting it when you had your first kind of outage that you describe in the in the essay. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, before I left for college, understanding that diabetes is expensive and that you have to worry about it, right? You know, my... It, it was very apparent, but I think this, this outage, like as I got older realizing, okay, I'm going to be off of my parents' insurance. Like, how am I going to be able to afford this disease while working my full-time job, having great health insurance, but it's still expensive. And so this time that I went to the pharmacy and, you know, I was just, I was, you know, I needed an extra vial and I was like, oh, you know, it'll be fine. Like, it's an emergency situation. And when they told me, oh yeah, it's going to be $371. I was like, are you kidding me? Like I need this to survive. This is crucial to my, you know, daily life. And 
I think part of me, you know, walked away because on principle, I was like, there's no way I'm paying $371 for, for this vial of insulin. Like I know other people, um, or I know someone has some sort of extra stash that they'd be willing to, to lend me a vial until I get my next shipment in. Um, but it's just infuriating. And I think people don't realize how expensive it is to live with a chronic illness until people are talking about it. Had you actually talked about cost with your mom or your folks before this, or was this kind of a real eye-opener? So my mom was very forward in making sure that I took ownership of my diabetes, that it was something I would have to live with for the rest of my life. So while she was super supportive and, and you know, financially uh, supportive, you know, I would be ordering my supplies. So I would see, you know, a a vial of insulin, a thing of test strips for six months was going to cost, you know, one time I remember going to the pharmacy and test strips for a six months like prescription was almost like a thousand dollars. And I was just kind of blown away by that. And so I kind of started to have that conversation with my mom, like, okay, well, you know, understanding what health insurance is. And like, once you meet a deductible, how much then are you responsible for? And so I kind of asked my mom, I was like, well, how much out of pocket of your own money are you spending per year on my diabetes? And so at the, you know, at that specific time, she was like, it's around $8,000 per year. Wow. And I think that, you know, she has a great job. She has great health insurance. And I was still kind of like, can I curse on this podcast or no? Sure. Okay. I was just like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. And especially as somebody who's a young adult at 26, $8,000 is a significant amount of money to me. Um, But so, yeah, so the conversation had kind of been ongoing, I would say, once I was like a junior or senior in high school, just because I went away for college um, and then I lived abroad. And so these were all things that I had to factor in. Um, And then when I was living abroad, I was actually uh, paying, I lived in Spain for a year. And so I was paying uh, Spanish taxes, which which meant that I could go to the doctor in Spain. So because of their health, uh, you know, what's it called? Universal health care. You can go to the doctor and if I needed test strips or if I needed a vial of insulin, they give it to you. Wow. It's no additional cost. Now, if you go to the pharmacy, it might, you know, be, you might have to pay for the, for the, you know, supplies, but it's, you know, $10 or 10, you know, relative. So it's, yeah. So it's crazy. So I, I, I feel like I've been able to see kind of different sides of, of the coin, I guess. Well, that's, I think that's really, your perspective is really interesting because I would imagine there are some people like you who emerge from high school, maybe even emerge from college without having any idea of the cost, the responsibility of managing completely on their own. Yeah, I I would agree. I think I know plenty of people who have had very supportive uh, parents or guardians, and there's little understanding of what it what it means to actually live with not only to live with the the disease, but to also be financially responsible. And I've known people that as they've gotten older, they've had to either move away from being on an insulin pump because it's not affordable 
on their current, um, you know, salary or income. Um, and I think that that's just crazy. I mean, there's so many things, right? Like the fact that health insurances will want you to switch, uh, the brand of insulin because they don't want to cover one brand versus the other. And, you know, all of the kind of loopholes that you're constantly jumping through, um, as somebody living with diabetes. There are so many different choices, so many different kinds of insulin, Insulin in a vial costs less than insulin in a pen. The new insulins cost more than the old insulins. Checking your blood sugar by pricking your finger as opposed to having, you mentioned, a Dexcom sensor. All those are come with different prices. And it's, um, it's uh, potentially baffling um, to people. So how did you learn about or know about what you call the, quote, underground market for insulin? Sure. So I, I found, um, T1 international, um, through social media, just through people I follow that are fellow diabetics. Um, and I was like, Oh, this organization seems really cool. They're not taking pharmaceutical money. It's very community oriented and grassroots. And so I reached out to them and was like, you know, I'd love to volunteer. And at the time they didn't have, um, they didn't have a, a leader for the Georgia chapter. So I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll step in. And so by becoming part of that um, Georgia chapter and understanding the work that T1 International does, they use this hashtag, which is hashtag insulin, the number four, and then all. And so on Twitter, there's this whole community of individuals that use this hashtag insulin for all. And under that, you will find people that um, you know, have run out of supplies, don't necessarily have the funds, um, to afford their supplies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I feel like this underground community has kind of developed even within my own, um, network of people from camp, um, kudzu, you know, if I'm in need or somebody else is in need, there's always like a posting, Hey, I'm short one Dexcom center sensor, or I need an extra pump site. Like, can someone help me out? You start to see this network of just people, you know, of community gathering and kind of supporting one another because the healthcare system is a pain and it doesn't make it easy and it's never immediate. And, Diabetes is very immediate um, and doesn't really stop for anything. Um, and then from Insulin for All, I saw people um, who kind of have bonded, you know, from that hashtag, hashtag created a um, a mutual diabetes like organization, a fund essentially. Um, and so that's its whole other beast, unrelated to kind of T1 International. So I get the. Boy, I, I'm I'm short a pen or a vial or I need some sensors. I get that part of it. I'm a little hazy on the um, I have insulin or diabetes supplies to share. How does that happen? I think that's people that choose to give back to the community. Um, they recognize that they have additional sense, you know, items and are willing to part with them. So I've had two instances for myself. So one was, um, 
somebody I knew was in need of insulin. And so I was kind of, you know, like looking around and somebody reached out to me and she was like, you know, I'm actually based in Atlanta. I would love to meet you and give you kind of the additional supplies I have. And she came and she was like, I have a whole box of Dexcom Center. She had two boxes of um, Omnipods and she had like probably, I don't know, four vials of insulin. And she essentially was like, look, I have all this stuff, but I don't know who to give it to. And you seem like you're in the position that you can kind of facilitate some sort of kind of exchange for a lack of a better word. Um, and so that's what I was able to do. I was able to take this person who had stockpiled their supplies and knew that they, there was realistically, they weren't going to need those supplies. And if there are people in need in the world, which there are, they were willing to part with them. And then another time on Twitter, I, you know, came across a tweet that someone was like, oh, I have extra pods. Like, does anybody need them? And I was like, you know what? It would be really helpful on my budget right now if I could take a box of pods that's basically going to last me a month and a half and delay my my next kind of like, um, you know, scheduled delivery. You know, where do these extra supplies come from? Are, is It's just a, like an insurance game or what? I would say it's an insurance game. Um, some, so I would say a lot of the stockpiling, like stockpiling insulin, I think is the easiest in the sense that you can have your provider write a prescription that you need, you know, X amount of units when really you may be using half of that. So then you're able to get a larger, um, kind of delivery of vials of insulin in my case. So even though I may only use like two, vials or a vial and a half, I can get three or four vials per month. So that allows me to kind of stockpile so that if I'm ever, you know, if one breaks or I drop it, or if I have a friend that I know needs insulin or whatever the case may be, I'm able to, to kind of share. Um, and it's a safety net for myself, right, as well. And then I think in terms of like the other diabetes supplies, I think that's an insurance game or it's, um, you know, they're able to order things in advance. I haven't mastered that one currently. So I have a practical question for you. I'm curiously now one of those people with insulin to share. My mother-in-law died a few months ago. I'm sorry. There was an unopened box of long-acting insulin in her refrigerator that I now have. If I want to pass this on, do, do I have to know a secret handshake or, you know, is there a park in Boston I need to go to at a certain time or what, you know, what's what would be my process for trying to hand this Lantus off to someone who could use it? Sure. Um, I would say a lot of it, it's on social media. Uh, there's no secret handshake. I mean, it's a random person you might be meeting in a, you know, public's parking lot, but but um, but no, I mean, it's either using that hashtag insulin for all or it's just knowing someone in the community that says, hey, I have this. If there's someone, um, you know, um, it kind of just kind of gets passed around until it finds a forever home. But I would say a lot um, of the exchange, I feel like happens on Twitter because there's so many people kind of in need and people will will tweet and be like, hi, I'm in Georgia and I need you know, short acting insulin. And then there's this whole like kind of thread of people who are like, okay, well, if you can't get something immediate, I'm in, you know, Texas and can ship something to you. So, you know, we've been talking about this 
from the perspective of people who have insurance, it must be a whole different story for someone who doesn't. There are 25 million Americans who don't have insurance, and a lot of those who are insured have really crappy insurance. What happens for them? You know, I, it's hard to know. Um, but there are, you know, there's this, you know, $35 what we call Walmart insulin, um, which is Science-wise, I forget how it's different, um, but essentially it's not the same chemically as the insulin that is normally prescribed um, to diabetics now. So that's an option, uh, like a more uh, economically friendly option. Um, I would say that there's a lot of trading or gift-giving um, of diabetes supplies or of insulin to those who are uninsured or do not have the financial means to afford things or to afford insulin or to afford whatever other diabetes supplies. Um, and there's a lot of rationing that happen in, happens in the diabetes community. I believe the statistic is one in four diabetics ration their insulin, which is I mean, that's crazy. That's 25% of people um, rationing their insulin because they don't know if, one, they can afford the next vial of insulin or pen of insulin or whatever it might be, or because they know they have very little left and they can't afford to buy more before the, you know, the next month starts or whatever it may be. So if somebody tries to ration, what happens to them physically? So kind of like you were talking about earlier, right? If you're rationing insulin, most likely your blood sugar is running high. So above range, which is, you know, anywhere from above, I would say like 180, you know, you're, you're up in the 200s and higher. Um, so you don't feel well. You're probably really thirsty. You probably feel nauseous. You probably have a headache. Um, it's really, it's, it's difficult to kind of like work through those feelings and continue on with your day-to-day -day life because essentially you feel lethargic, right? Because that sugar is just, and carbohydrates are just in your blood and not being converted into energy. Yeah. And to take that a bit further, what your cells are trying to do to get energy is they're burning fat. And by burning fat, right. they're releasing these waste products called ketones. Ketones. And they build up in the blood, they can build up in the bloodstream and people can, diabetic ketoacidosis, as it's called, can cause yep. coma. And I've heard of people dying, and I would imagine you have too, from yeah. not having enough insulin yeah. or rationing it. Yeah. Um, I do know individuals who have died from rationing their insulin, who have gone into DKA. I mean, no person should die because they can't afford the medicine that they need to survive. I mean, I think that should be a given, and there should be you know, insulin really realistically, it shouldn't cost anything. You know, nobody chose to, to have diabetes. It's not something you can choose. Diabetes doesn't discriminate. Um, and it can affect anyone at any point in their life. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of the larger issue is that now we see like diabetes is being talked about, you know, when Trump, um, in one of his, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Debates. He was like, you know, uh, insulin is as cheap as water, whatever that kind of phrase was. And there was that kind of an outcry, like, no, you're so far um, removed from kind of that world and what insulin pricing actually looks like. Um, and so now it's being talked about, right, that, that insulin prices are essentially like 300 times 
what they were when, when it was created and the actual chemical components haven't changed. Right. Um, so if you ask me, I think it's pharmaceutical price gouging, but it's absurd. So and when you think back to the discoverers of insulin almost exactly 100 years ago in 1921, they sold the patent for it to the University of Toronto for a buck mm-hmm. um, because they believed that yep. insulin should be available to everybody. And it has, it yep. has certainly uh, changed since then. You referred to the price going up. The price has tripled in the last decade. That's a lot. Um, and you've already kind of pointed out the cost. So social media is kind of a, a Band-Aid. What, you know, where mm-hmm. you had mentioned something about um, the Biden administration doing something about insulin prices. Can you talk about that for a second? Sure. Um you know, I applaud the Biden administration for making it part of their economic plan and that it's, you know, we're working towards making insulin more affordable. Um, I think the specifics of the plan don't cover those that are uninsured. Um, and it's, it's the, the price cap is great and it's important and it's a start. But, but like I said, you know, I think there should be like a federal price cap. And I think that there needs to be, I think it needs to be accessible and affordable to all of those, those with and, wa- with and without insurance and those unemployed as well. To extend it, there, there are a lot of other chronic diseases that people live with for years, for lifetimes, and who need the same sort of medical support that you and I have through insulin. So it seems like that these kinds of plans should be spread against spread over everybody. I would agree with that. I mean, medicine, healthcare in general should be made available to the to the most vulnerable, right? That's who you should be catering to. That should be the person that you have in mind, those uninsured, those unemployed, those unable to afford. And if your healthcare can't cover those individuals, then what's the point of covering everyone else, right? You know, I think the most vulnerable population should be the, you know, that's, that's your target customer in my eyes, right? Uh, not those that can afford to, you know, make $8,000 per year work. So are you continuing your advocacy work? Yes, but in a less formal um, way. I think, you know, I learned a lot about the Georgia Georgia legislature um, with my time with T1 International. Um, Georgia has done basically next to nothing in terms of diabetes and um, access to medicine. Um, So I think there's a lot to happen there. And I know that with Senator Warnock um, kind of... um, jumping on to Biden's economic plan, that there's hope that, you know, maybe there's change happening in Georgia. Um, so I'm still doing advocacy, but less less formally, I guess, uh, kind of on my own terms. Well, Alina, thank you for writing for us. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. And good luck on your journey with this strange chronic disease that we share. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure and we'll continue living and thriving with diabetes. And I'm, I'm glad that insulin, um, cost and, you know, is being talked about and is being afforded the coverage that it it really merits. So, and we can only wait to see what's coming down the pike. Exactly. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Thank you.